Welcome to the Writer in Progress podcast. I am Shannon. And I am Marg. And together we make up the team at Scriptabox. We are here to inspire, support and resource writers just like you to reach your writing goals. Today we bring you an interview we did back in 2020 with author and writer coach Lisa Crone, author of Wired for Story and Story Genius. This interview is full of great tips for writers, so get yourself a notebook and be ready for the genius of Lisa. So without further ado, let's get into our interview. Our guest today has worked as a literary agent, TV producer and story consultant for Warner Brothers and the William Morris Agency. She's a story analyst, speaker, UCLA Extension Writers Program Instructor, and the author of our feature book this month, Story Genius. Welcome, Lisa Crod. Hi, yay. Hello, everybody. It is a thrill to be here. Oh, we're, we're, we're thrilled to have you here. Thank you so, so much. So what was your motivation behind writing the Story Genius? The truth is, uh, when I finished writing Wired for Story, and it had come out and I thought, I can finally relax, it's over. And uh, as I was just saying before we began, I, I really firmly do believe everybody should work with a story coach, not wait until you finished what you're writing, but work with somebody all the way through who can give you story feedback, developmental feedback, not editing. And I have someone who I work with who is in fact Jenny Nash, who in Story Genius very, very kindly uh, allowed when I said, well, I, I need an example and I'm not sure what to do. And she said, oh, I'll start my next novel, you know, in your book. <laughs> she thought it would be easy. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, so not easy. But she said, didn't let me relax after that. And she said, okay, now that you've got, you've got Wired for Story, um, which has a lot of theory in it, what are you going to tell people to actually do? How do they start? What do they do? How do they apply this to something? And I started thinking about what became Story Genius because I started going and giving workshops. And then what happened was my editor at 10 Speed said, she said she only, um, she only worked with, with nonfiction. She was a nonfiction editor. She acquired nonfiction. And she said, you know, I decided to try my hand at novel writing and I've read all these books on what to do. And I think they're terrible. <laughs> and she said, do you want to write a book that's prescriptive on that way? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I've already been thinking about that. And that's how Story Genius came to be. Wow. Um, so what do you think drew you to looking at brain science and its connection with storytelling? That's a really good question. I mean, part of it is just that I was always interested in brain science, because when you think about it, neuroscience and, and being a novelist and telling a story, it's basically about the same thing. What makes people tick? Why do people do what they do? And so I've been really fascinated you know, with brain science. And when I started to write Wired for Story, and the reason I wrote it is because I had worked with story all my life in one, in one way or another. And at that point I was, I was working at William Morris and I was reading books to film. So I was reading, in other words, if you'd written a manuscript and you had an agent for books, but not for film, the guy I worked for at William Morris was a film agent. So he would read it and he would take books to film. So I read thousands at that point. I was reading thousands and thousands of manuscripts and I had to do, you know, you guys, read a book you don't like, you don't like it, you put it down, you don't finish it. I had to finish it. And then I had to say why it either worked or didn't work. And, you know, as you can imagine, 99.9% .9 of them did not work. 
but what I realized in doing that was that what writers had been taught is what grabs us and what you needed to do was completely untrue. That what grabbed us and what pulled us in was about, okay, why does this matter to someone? How is it affecting someone internally? What sense are they making? Given what their, given what their agenda is, is this gonna help them or hurt them? And what are they therefore going to do as a result? In other words, we come to story for the internality, what the character's thinking, rather than what's happening in the plot or the beautiful writing. In other words, it was the complete opposite of what I thought at that point was supposed to pull me in. And so that's kind of what got me into writing and thinking about, about Wired for Story. And I thought, this is sort of my theory. This is what I think. At the same time, and I'm super really lucky at this, brain science and neuroscience was just having its day. It was really starting to come into, you know, you could read it in the newspapers and magazines. Yeah. I would Scientific American Mind, and I started reading scholarly papers. And when I read it, I, I realized, this isn't my theory, this is fact. This is what we're looking for. And so at that point, I just dove more and more deeply into neuroscience. In fact, when I first wrote the manuscript for, for Wired for Story, um, and I was very lucky to have gotten the agent, my, my dream agent, like the one I wanted, you know, loved it. And my editor at 10 Speed, um, she said, I really like this book. I want more neuroscience. And at that point, it was like, you're singing my song. <laughs> and, I, and I put even more, and let me, if I could just tell you one quick thing to really underscore the, really what it is we're wired to look for in every story that we, that we come to, whether it's a movie, whether it's a book, whether it's a, a headline. I've just finished writing another book that's gonna come out in March that's not just for the writing world, but for the world of, if you wanna convince your team not to text and drive, if you're in advertising, if you're in a nonprofit, if you just wanna to, to change how anybody sees anything, you know, how to do that and, and how to create a story that, that would. So I've, I've, I've been really re-immersing myself in current neuroscience and I came across a study it's really fascinating. It was by a, a neuroscientist named Stephen Brown out of McMaster University. And he wanted to see when we get pulled into a story, what's the first thing we want to know? Like what part of our brain is activated? And he thought, and he literally said this in the scholarly paper he wrote and then in the, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the magazine article that was also in Science Daily about it. He said he thought that it was going to be the part that looks for plot because he said, it's what Aristotle said, right? Plot first, character second. We're often taught that. And he said that turned out to be 100% not true. He said the first part of your brain that comes online when you get pulled into any story, and he was using, he was using just headlines like a surgeon finds scissors with impatient or, you know, fisherman saves, uh, you know, boy from falling you know, through, through the ice. And he had them all like wired up. And he said the first part of your brain that comes online is the part that mentalizes, which means it's the part that goes, okay, wait, whose story is this? What do they want? What are they afraid of? What is their motivation? How is this affecting them? In other words, we don't look at what's happening. We don't look at how things are worded. We don't look at lovely, luscious metaphors. We don't look at sensory details. We look for whose story is this and why is what's happening up here in the plot? Why does that matter to that particular person at that particular moment? It's what we're wired for. And if we don't have that in a story, 
we have no reason to, to read it. We don't come for what happens. We come for why what happens matters. We don't come for what's on the surface. We come for what's beneath the surface. And that's internal. And again, which often is what writers are told not to do. Don't give us backstory and don't let us know what the character's thinking. Two biggest lies you are ever told as a writer. Could not be less true. Those are the two things that keep us reading when they're done right. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So speaking of story, what, what is your definition of story? I mean, I can, I can tell you from, and it'll take me, <laughs> one of the things I forgot to tell you guys is um, I can go on and on and on. But so no, please. <laughs> at any point, even like, like Plato's shut up is totally fine. <laughs> Not be offended. But my, my definition of story is, and I'll say it twice, slowly i hope because i know i i know i talk fast no, that's but, but a story is about how what happens affects someone who's in pursuit of a deceptively difficult goal and how that person changes internally as a result and then can either solve the problem or sees that it isn't the problem that they thought it was and that is really what a story is and if you'd like me to i can break that down um in yes so a story is about how what happens. And that how what happens is merely the surface of the story. Yes, that is the plot. And when I say merely, I mean merely. It is not, and if I leave you with nothing, it's always with this, it is not what the story's about. The story is not about the plot, which is why if it was up to me, and this is incendiary, literally and figuratively, if it was up to me, I would burn every story structure book Hero's journey, which is so misogynist, we don't even need to go into it, all the way up to whatever the most current, you know, story structure book is now. Because for one thing, it's a misnomer. It's not story structure, it's plot structure. And the story is not about the plot. And the cheat in those books is they use familiar stories. So when you hear the plot, you're already supplying the internality. You already know why it matters. You've already got that urgency. And so you start thinking this happens to happen by page 10 and this by page whatever and it, it literally I can't tell you how much it doesn't work that way story structure is the byproduct of a story well told not from the outside and stories bottom up not top down so it's about how what happens that's the plot affects someone that someone is your protagonist the protagonist is your reader's avatar within the story your protagonist's brain is the command center of your novel. Just think of it like if you ever watch any of the Star Trek stuff, it's like a Vulcan mind meld. It's like <laughs> you really are there. Again, like that study that we just talked about, first place we go. And everything that happens over here in the plot gets its meaning and emotional weight based on one thing and one thing only. And that is how it is affecting your protagonist. Birth, death, all the Roman Empire can be so shockingly boring, you think there's something wrong with you, but there's not because it doesn't matter even a tiny bit, unless it's affecting your protagonist and not affecting them in general, like, you know, your protagonist hates cold weather. And so instead of snowing in the plot, so they're going to stay home and, you know, drink cocoa and read all night, but affecting your protagonist who's in pursuit of a deceptively difficult goal, meaning it's way more difficult than it looks like at first blush, like most of the goals that we've got, right? And you think that they're going to be easy and then they're, they're very difficult. And that, that goal, that agenda, is sometimes called the story problem, sometimes it's called the plot problem, and it's what your protagonist is going to have to deal with. Because stories are about 
change. And all change is hard. Good change is as hard as bad change. In other words, it's just as hard to leave home to get married as it is to leave home to get divorced. And let's face it, sometimes it's way easier to leave home to get divorced than it is to get married. <laughs> but that means that your protagonist is gonna be struggling. It's gonna be something difficult because the only way we change is when something forces us to change. Otherwise, especially big changes, right? Otherwise we go, I'll do it when I'm rested or, you know, or when the time is right or when Mercury's out of retrograde, you know, which basically translates to a week from never. So <laughs> how what happens, that's the plot, affects someone, that's your protagonist, in pursuit of a deceptively difficult goal. That is that agenda that they step onto page one with. And how that person changes internally as a result. And that internal change is what your story is actually about. In other words, the story is not about the plot. The story is about how the plot changes the protagonist. It's not about that external change. It's about an internal change. And if you're thinking, wait, what do you mean my protagonist has to change? Change from what to what? What are you talking about? It brings us to the notion that all protagonists enter the story, all, all characters really, with two things fully formed. Something they want and have wanted for a long time before they get onto page one. Something they want and have wanted for a long time and what I call a misbelief, something that's kept them from getting it. Misbelief comes into a character's life really early on when they're, you know, childhood, early teen years by definition. And the misbelief is a misbelief about human nature. It's not a misbelief about something factual, you know, like I thought the world was flat and I hope you're sitting down because it's actually round. But something more like, you know, the nicer someone is to you, the more they're actually trying to manipulate you. Okay. And that misbelief then keeps the character from getting what they wanted and it ricochets through their life, causing them to make the choices that they make. It grows, it escalates, it complicates until you get to page one where whatever that problem that's awaiting them there. Mm -hmm. And often, let's face it, the problem, you know, like in our lives, right? Problems seem like they come out of the blue. But the truth is, they've been building for quite some time, and that's the moment that they hit critical mass. In other words, often the problem the protagonist is dealing with results from the unintended consequences of all the choices that they've made. And then that, that problem forces them to go forward, and scene by scene by scene by scene, they need to go after what they want, that fully formed agenda that they've already got before they step onto page one, and so the plot scene by scene by scene by scene forces them to go after it. But to do that, they've got to confront this misbelief that's held them back. And those two things together, that desire and the misbelief are what I call the novel's third rail. In other words, it's what gives meaning, it's what gives electricity, it's what gives urgency to everything that's happening up there in the plot. Without that, you just have really sadly, what most manuscripts are that come into agents and you know that that i end up looking at uh, in the beginning and most manuscripts are literally nothing but a bunch of things that happen mm. yeah. or how well written it is yeah. so that's what it kind of last thing is that internal change that your protagonist is making that is your novel's narrative through line when people go what's your narrative through line they think it's the plot 100% untrue. It's the story that your protagonist is telling themselves about what's happening, the meaning they're reading into it, the changing meaning that what's happening up there in the plot is forcing them to recognize. Mm. That's 
the narrative through line. That's what holds us. That's what we come for. Story is the difference between what we say out loud and what we're really thinking when we say it. Yeah. You, you just mentioned about how um, the misbelief often happens in that childhood moment of the protagonist. Yeah. Um, for, in terms of someone who's writing like a book for, for children where the protagonist is a child, does that misbelief experience change because you're, you're in that time frame? Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, almost, it depends on how little the kid is. <laughs> if they're three, then yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there is no early. It doesn't happen in utero, for sure. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it just happens more recently, obviously, than if your protagonist is third. Um, right. Definitely. But it's still, the thing, it depends on if you're writing, even if you're writing for children, you want to be careful not to sanitize too much. The truth is kid logic is much more raw and much more honest than adult logic because they haven't learned euphemisms yet. Yeah. And they haven't learned what you're, the things you're not supposed to notice and the things you're not supposed to say. And the other thing about childhood and why misbeliefs come at that moment is because you may have heard of like Maslow, Abraham Maslow yeah. was an American and he talks about, you know, the pyramid of needs, you know, yeah. and he goes, okay, the top of that pyramid is like, you know, connection and sense of purpose. At the bottom, the first thing we need, he says, is food, water, shelter. And that's not true. Because the first thing we need is someone who cares about us enough to give us those things because as children, we can't get them. So as children, if we, if we don't have, you know, parents or, or someone who's willing to take care of us, we're lost. So we are desperately trying to find out how the world works as kids. I don't mean to make it sound totally transactional, but it kind of is. Yeah. You know, if I do this, I need to do this and mom will like me, then mom is going to give me food. You know, this is what's going to make mom happy. This is what's going to make dad happy. And the thing is, and the reason misbeliefs then go forward in life is because when you're a kid, you're not thinking, you know, if your parents, let's say you have really weird parents. And we all had really weird parents, I'm guessing. We <laughs> <laughs> never really weird parent. But you don't think, okay, my parents are weird, but other people's parents are different. You just go, that's how people are. That's the difference. That's why we are learning how human nature works vis-a-vis -vis our parents. Mm. That's why misbeliefs come at a really early age, whether it's from parents or school or just anybody at that age. We're trying to figure it out. Whereas if the same thing happened to an adult, you'd go, well, that person's a jerk, but I have a whole bunch of other nice people. So whatever they've done just applies to them and not everybody. Mm. We all misbelieve. I can't tell you how many writers I've worked with where they've said, I was looking for my protagonist misbelief and I found my own. <laughs> <laughs> all got them. And sometimes they don't just come from like, trauma with a capital T, you know, like I was out in the desert and the spaceship took me up and now I'm completely, I mean, they can be the tiniest moment that just imprints and then it skews everything from that moment forward. Um, and we've all got them. I mean, again, that's, that's brain science. In your book, you say that we don't turn up to story to escape reality, but to navigate reality. Can you expand that for us? Sure. I mean, we turn, the way that we make sense of everything in our lives, there's two ways we make sense of everything. People tend to think 
that we make sense of things in some sort of logical way, like we all see the same world and there's a reality out there and we're all reading the same meaning into it, except for people who are, you know, really, really screwed up and we hope they get a lot of help so they can join us over here in real reality. <laughs> the truth is the way we make sense of things is based on one thing and one thing only. And that's what our past experiences taught us. And the only way that we, well, in terms of story, I mean, the reason we're wired for story is because we turn everything into narrative. By definition, in our life story, we're the protagonist. And as much as we may love our significant others and our children, our dog and our parents, let's face it, they're the supporting characters. And we relate everything they do to and make sense of it, them and everybody else in the world, to how is this going to affect me given my specific agenda? And everything is on that level. Uh, that's where all the meaning comes from, completely. With story, it is our, the world's first virtual reality so that we can figure out what's safe and what isn't in situations we haven't yet had to be in. I mean, that's literally why we're wired for story. Evolutionary biologists look into it and thought, I mean, we all know how, you know how like when there's some book that you love and you've got a big meeting the next day and you think just one more page, right? Just one more page. I'll just wait till I get to the end of the chapter. If it's a good writer, you can never stop at the end of the chapter, right? It's just one more page. And then like, you notice that, that suddenly like somebody's parked a Mack truck outside of your apartment and, light, and you're thinking, turn those lights off. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute. No, that's the sun. And yeah. you've been up all night. Yeah. Now, literally when that happens, your, your biology has turned off. I mean, you literally have a timeout on reality and you are, as we were saying a minute ago, you're literally in the world of the story. They've done functional MRI studies that show when you're lost in a story, you, the same areas of your brain are lighting up, up that would light up as if you were doing what that character's doing. You, it really is that, that, that mind meld. So story is that world's first virtual reality in terms of is this safe or isn't it? And what would it feel like if I was in that situation? Because very often, you know, as we all know, right? I mean, things, when we get what we thought we wanted, things feel really different than we thought they would. Yeah. And that's what allows us to do that. And we're being affected by stories every minute of every day. And the fact of the matter is we tend to not know it because we tend to think of story as something that we willingly, like that, that Coleridge quote, you know, to get lost in a good story demands a, a willing suspension of disbelief. Yes. Could not be less true. Total and complete lie. Because when you're pulled into a story, I mean, what literally happens is when, you, when that story hits your brain, you get the surge of, of the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is what curiosity brings up. And people talk of it as the pleasure hormone, but really it's curiosity because you think it's going to make you feel good. So you've got that the dopamine and the other two, two, two biological reactions that we have to story is both, both you have to have something where something is at stake, so we care about someone and that's cortisol, now I'm worried about them. And it needs to be something where we have empathy for them because then that does the, my mind is blanking on the name of the other, of the other and I will get it in a minute, the other hormone, it's the hormone when you nurse a baby, the, the, the empathy hormone, those, that cocktail together, is what pulls us in and we literally are there. That's why all those things have to be present right there on that, not pretty writing, but those things have to be present on that page. I feel, like, every, I feel like everything we've been told as, as authors, as, as um, writers, isn't it, to this is what you must do, this suspend, yeah. you know, disbelief. And it has all been like a, yeah. a lie. <laughs> 
It is a lie. And, and I, here's why. If you, the reason I think, because it's counterintuitive, when we read a novel, like writers will often say, you know, if you want to learn how to write well, read great novels. Mm -hmm. I think the opposite is true. 100%. I learned everything I learned from reading those manuscripts that were terrible, like really, truly, because it showed me what didn't work. Gotcha. The problem with reading great novels is that, again, you're sucked into it. So, I mean, the first job of a good story is to anesthetize the part of your brain that knows it is a story. So when you're really, when, you know, when your biology has put that time out and you're lost in the world of the story, the last thing you can do or want to do is figure out, well, how did the writer do this? But there are the two things that you can see regardless. And one is the beautiful writing, totally see that. And the other is because we think in story, but we see things visually as the plot. And so it's very easy to assume I need a plot and I need beautiful writing. And if I've got those two things, then if I have the talent, a story will appear and it just doesn't it just doesn't work that way and it, it stuns me um i, I can't I've, I've heard one very big person in the writing world his agent has written several books and when he talks about what you're supposed to do i always think have you never read a novel like are you kidding me you're telling us not to do this stuff where i could take any novel and show you it is laced all the way through and the truth is because backstory again is the most seminal layer of story if you don't have backstory you don't have story as faulkner said past isn't dead it isn't even past where you always have to start again not like uh let me do a you know a bio from birth till page one because you never want to do that either but story specifically backstory what is that misbelief where did it come from how has it landed your character here? Very specifically, because that's the problem that they're going to be solving. That is, that is again, that's where story logic comes from. Because the logic isn't the logic in the plot. The logic is the logic that your protagonist is using to make sense of what's going on. Which, with you, me, all of you guys out there, that comes from our past. Yeah. That's why you are wherever you are right now in your life. You didn't wake up this morning and just out of the blue do a bunch of stuff all came from your past, not just what you're doing, but what you feel about it, what you're afraid of and what you want. And all of that, same thing with your characters. I was working with one writer who said, she said, you know, I wanna see what you're talking about. I really wanted to get this internality and backstory, you know, cause people are told like, use backstory story sparingly. And then only when the reader needs to know something. Biggest lie ever. First of all, you never put backstory because the reader needs to know something. It's cause your protagonist is struggling with something in the moment trying to figure out what to do and they do what we all do which is i just finished in fact reading a book by a neuroscientist called your brain is a time machine and it's like the sole purpose of our brain is to record past memories in order to predict the future which means whenever you're in a tough situation which in every scene your protagonist is going to need to make a tough decision you turn to the past to try to figure out what to do that's what we do as humans that's how the brain works but anyway so this is why she said you know what I hear what you're saying, but I wanted to see it. So she took out a highlighter and she said, I decided, I took out this highlighter and I decided I was gonna highlight everything in the next novel I was reading that was backstory and this internality you're talking about. She said, I'm halfway through and she was reading um, Sharp Objects, which is Jillian Flynn who wrote Gone Girl, that's her first book. She said, I'm halfway through Sharp Objects and I've highlighted 60, that's six zero percent of it. Oh, wow. Backstory is the most fundamental, seminal, important layer of 
anything you are ever going to write. It is where a story comes from. It is where the plot comes from. And it is, it, you know that, and then you never have to go. If you're ever in a place where I don't know what happens next, you haven't done this work. You never have to wonder, you know, I wonder what's going to happen next. And when you get stuck, as I'm very fond of saying, and say to every writer I work with, because it's always true, the answer to what's going on here always lies in your story's backyard. Mm. Oh, Got to create the backyard first. And that's, that's the story. Plot something else entirely. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, I even forgot what the question was, but I, I love that. It. I love it. I love it. Uh, you, you, you say, story is all about um, a protagonist's emotional growth. Um, so, as a coach, how would you approach um, this with someone who wants to write a series um, instead of just a standalone book? Well, I, I mean, it, it's the same sort of regardless. And to some degree, it depends on what kind of series you're talking about. Are they a detective and they're going to go through and you're going to be, you know, a whole bunch of, of detective novels? Is it a romance where it's, you know, several, you know, romances often have several uh, volumes, you know, or a bunch of characters and, you know, each one will be the protagonist of one. Or are we talking about something that's sci-fi or speculative? Wait, let's go speak. But, but. Let's go. Spec. Spec. Okay. Right. In the end, I mean, and again, it depends on how big it is and how many. I was working with one writer who was saying, like, and he was he wanted to write a seven-volume series. He said, I read speculative all the time. And he said, you know, it's about it's about universes and galaxies and worlds, but there's seven people we're following all the way through. Because it's really true. And and often it is one arc. And when a character has a misbelief. Once that's sort of been dealt with, when that gets pulled away, there's always something underneath it that's now green and new and it's tested. And it sort of goes forward that way so that whatever whatever is realized there leads to something now that needs to be realized in the next and now that needs to be realized in the one after that. It never, it never changes. Same thing with every other character. Every character steps onto the page with a fully formed agenda every character, no matter who they are. It's, there's nobody who's just there to, to, to do something. That's why when I talk about the scene cards, we're just thinking about if you're writing something, if you look at any scene you're gonna write, you wanna ask yourself, okay, and the only thing I would change, by the way, just to say in the book story genius, you're gonna look at it, on the scene cards, which if you're gonna read the book, you'll see, and it'll say blank subplot, blank subplot, blank meaning, okay, in every scene, every scene, you know, it's not just the main storyline, but every scene tends to move several subplots forward. I no longer use the word subplot because I try to avoid any word that's conceptual or fuzzy. Like I would never use the word, and this is in Wired for Story, and if I could yank anything out, it would be this, I would never use the word theme ever again at all because like what does that even mean like how do you like and even if you could say what a theme was how does it look like on there i use the word point what point is your story making because that's what theme actually is 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 the point so we don't need to go into that but in terms of um in terms of subplot i changed that to storyline because the truth is when you think about subplots, they're almost always borne out by a, a particular character's storyline, right? It's because it isn't some vague thing. It's, so in each scene, you would be asking yourself, okay, given, the, you know, let's say there are three characters in the scene, one's your protagonist and then two others. Each of those characters stepped onto the page, counting the protagonist with an agenda. 
And scene by scene by scene by scene, they are trying to bring that particular agenda to fruition. So the question in each scene is, in this scene, how is this character going to be bringing, trying to bring their, their, uh, their agenda to fruition? What are they gonna be doing that furthers it? And by knowing that, you end up not having what I've taken to, to calling often characters, hopefully not the protagonist, you've done this work that we're talking about, um, uh, plot enablers. You know, where, where a secondary character is suddenly doing whatever is needed to be done to make whatever that plot point is happen. And you never want them to do, never turn them loose because then they'll do something over here and then they do something different over here and then you're going, yeah, but if they did that or why on earth did they do this? It doesn't make any sense. And it's because they had to ring that bell. Again, which is why plotting, it's so odd. I've noticed that people, when they plot something out and they've got plot point, plot point, plot, it starts becoming like a race. It's like, but get into a scene, like how fast can I hit that plot point and, you know, and get to the, and, and you, you, you don't want to do that. It's, it's not about the what, it's about the why, you know? And if, if you let it be your character who's not driving it because you're pantsing, because pantsing is the worst thing, in my opinion, and I know you can, you, <laughs> I know that writers probably want to set my hair on fire. <laughs> I think pantsing 150% doesn't work. I think it's a complete and total waste of time. Unless you have a natural sense of story, you know, or you're going to spend 10 years doing it and then good luck. I think it's why they say that, and what is it like, like out of a hundred people who sit down to write a first draft, only three make it to the end of that first draft. Yeah. Yeah. Three, three out of a hundred. And if you look at it that way, so let's say there's that, that, that three now have made it to the end. Now let's imagine that now there's going to be the ones who are going to go, not going to go, Oh my God, this is terrible. And leave it alone. But they're going to do you know, second or third draft. They're going to, you know, at the end, my personal belief is the story polishes the prose. So even if there is any, polishing at the end, you know, usually not. I, I think that's such a misnomer, the polish, because it, it tends to be about writing. And it's the story that gives it the meaning. It's a story that gives the mean that gives the words their power and their meaning, not the words or the metaphors or the pretty language or anything on that level. Story polishes the prose hundred percent. But but once that's done, God, I totally lost my train of thought there. Wait, what did you ask me? It just completely <laughs> went out of my head um <laughs> we were talking about series and writing series oh, right. yeah yeah it, no 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 i had gone i believe i think i had gone actually, over past that <laughs> i know i know just completely went out of my head because i went into one of my things about about um the story polishes the prose and edit oh i remember what it was i told you back okay so it was about so so the three people have finished and they've got that first draft and now some of them have gone back and they've edited and now and now of those people they're going to send it out and they're going to try to get they're going to try to go the traditional route and they're going to try to you know to find an agent and the truth is as agents will tell you um so when i was talking to my own agent about this you know that they'll say the number that's out there they'll say that uh 96 of manuscripts that come in are rejected i in my experience, working as an agent, working, I think that number is low. I would say it was 98%. Wow. My agent said, yeah, I think 96 is too many. So in other words, if you've got of those three people, and let's say we're down to two who are actually going to send it out, and of those two that go out, 96% is going to get rejected. 
And that's because most novels are nothing but a bunch of things that happen. Mm. It's just a fact. It's just a fact. There's no point. They think it's about, you know, it's like, it's that great line that Flannery O'Connor, um, the great Southern writer once said, she said, I find most people know what a story is until they sit down to write one. Mm. And I think that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. It's not about writing. It's just not about writing. It's about story. Wow. Uh, would you say that's why so many people start writing and, and don't finish? Because they just don't have that understanding of what story really is? Well, yes. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't think they would articulate it that way. I think they start writing and then they don't know what happens next. Mm. And they don't know what to do. You know, that feeling like that's a great idea. And they start and then they have no idea because there is no there there. It was, it wasn't there, you know, again, without the past, you don't have anything happening. And then what writers tend to do is they start writing really, really pretty. <laughs> it's like, I'll just write these beautiful sentences and see what happens. Yeah. And, and, and then they just end up, you know, putting it in a drawer and that's the end of that. I, I, I do, it's hard. Also, I mean, part of it is this world that we live in where we want things to be easy. Writing is hard. Yeah. Writing a story is hard. You gotta be willing. I mean, one of my favorite expressions is actually a military expression, which is you gotta love the suck. It's hard, it's messy, it's not linear. That's the other problem I think writers often have is they think, and, and again, it's a logical, it's, you know, it's a logical uh, 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 mistake to make is that because we read a book, you know, from page one going all the way forward, it's easy to think we would start on page one and go forward and it's linear and it just isn't, it's just not. There's so much work you've got to do before. And the thing I'm always saying to writers is this work that you have to do before, it's not pre-writing, it's not research, this is writing. It's that the process doesn't start on page one. It starts before page one, but all of this work that you're doing isn't just, and now you throw it away and you get to it, almost all of it catapults into the story in the form of flashbacks, in the form of the, you know, the memories that the protagonist has as they're trying to go forward. And it begets the plot. The plot actually starts to auto-populate once you get to the point of, okay, here's where we are, you know, diving into page one and what's gonna happen on that level it becomes almost like it's almost like just I, for the first time I'll say this is the first time I ever said it anywhere because I was talking to a writer earlier and I said to her because she said when I write forward I want it to be like math and, and it just isn't and I said yeah but if you go back and you do this work it's like and this is sort of sad because it's one of the says I just moved the, the table shook us because I just shook it um I mean one of the scary things about neuroscience is that you really realize how little, if any, free will we have. <laughs> we really don't. We're so deeply programmed from the way that our brain takes information and tries to keep us safe. In fact, so many of the things that they, that they tell us are weaknesses, like somebody's insecure, we're all insecure. We're all trying to figure out what other people are thinking because by definition, thank God, we don't know. <laughs> the worst thing that would be is if we could actually read someone else's mind. I mean, we don't want to know that, like, for sure. But, you know, but the point is, is that once we have been, for lack of a better way of putting it, programmed by, by our past, what we're gonna do is pretty predictable. So it's like an algorithm. You've created the protagonist's past. Think of that as the algorithm that goes toward what it is that's gonna drive them in the story and what's gonna hold them back. And that's why the answer always is in your story's backyard. 
because it is going back to that algorithm. Why would they do it? Well, there's the answer. Okay, let's go forward. I mean, stories are on one level, very hopeful, wishful thinking, which is, yeah, people can change. And I do think they can. That's what stories are about, how we change. They're not about how we change what we do. They're about how our attitudes change about the world. And that's what changes what we do. It's not about the what, it's about the why. Always, that's what we come for. Why would someone do that? And what it looks like on the surface is often really different than what it really is. That's why we want to know. It comes down to that level of specificity for that particular person. And it is never, ever for the reader to figure it out. That's the writer's job. Is putting it on page. Never for the reader to figure it out. It's almost like when you when you change the way you think a story and you think of it like this, it also changes how you see yourself and and how you perceive the world in general. And it, it helps you to really like, I suppose, understand people more better. That's a terrible <laughs> understand people better um, by understanding like, how people think and how how everything is is rooted in those past perceptions and that worldview that they've created and yeah it's, it's not our choice i mean that's where people go i mean as we can see right now i mean especially in this country which i totally apologize for <laughs> but at the end of the day when you look here or anywhere the way people are at loggerheads over i mean back in the day let's imagine we still have facts you know but people can read opposite meanings into facts and it's not because one's smart and one's stupid it's because back in the day again when they were kids this is what their family their for lack of a better word tribe believed and we're wired to need to belong to a tribe because that's how we survive the reason that that i mean if you look at us humans compared to other animals it's kind of shocking that we're at the top of the food chain. <laughs> you know, we can't fly, we don't have big teeth, we don't have venom, you know, we're not super strong. I mean, what can we really do? It's our brain, but we can't operate alone. It's the fact that we can work together. That's, that literally, that is literally what allowed us to, to leap to the top of the food chain without having to earn our way there. Most other animals had to work their way up. Our brain suddenly had its that big growth spurt about 100,000 years ago, which then, allowed us and and you know for a long time scientists thought that the reason that we had that growth spurt was you know we got the ability to think you know analytical thinking and the truth is what they realized now is that wasn't what spurred it even though that is what happened then but what was wired there was our need to belong to a group we are as hardwired we're all people who need people we are as hardwired to need to belong to a group of people as we are hardwired to need food air and water and because of that, the thought of social austerization, the pain of that literally travels the same neural pathways as physical pain. So when someone comes to you and challenges your beliefs, you don't go, well, let me think about this factually. Here's this factual belief and here's this other thing over here. It, it hits your brain and feels like a personal threat. Yes. It feels like fighting words. Not because you're stupid. You're, you're not doing anything. It is not your fault. It is literally how we're wired. We're wired to live in a world we don't live in anymore. And so that's why it bugs me when everybody's like going and saying it's your fault or you're stupid or you've got to learn or let it go or whatever. It's like, it just doesn't, you can't, you can't. But you can understand it a bit and then maybe sort of come around it. But to vilify it and to vilify other people for their beliefs, it just, it, it, it doesn't do any good. 
because it's literally not how we're wired. We're, we're wired, you know, to need other people. That's why, that's what's wrong, my personal opinion, with this country here. And they talk about rugged individualism and, you know, and I'm going to go out and be a lone wolf. And I always want to say to people, do you understand that there aren't lone wolves in the wolf community? Do you understand that wolves travel in packs? It's like, you know what a lone wolf literally is? In the wolf community, a lone wolf is a wolf that has been ostracized and is left to die. That's what a lone wolf is. Mm. We have a saying, you grow alone, grow, you grow weird. Yeah, we're bad. <laughs> yes, that is true. Because you can't, because we all need people. And we all tend to think, even people who think they made it alone, they're standing on the shoulders of so many other people who've done mm. so much and make so much possible. Nobody can make it alone. It just doesn't work that way. Mm. You make a comment in your book about how Fifty Shades of Grey sold 100 million copies. <laughs> what do you think it is about that book that sold that much? It stunned us, by the way, just saying. <laughs> that now. I mean, it was like 125 million, and that was before the movies came out. Oh, wow. So imagine how many it must be now. I mean, honestly, I'll give you my honest opinion. I mean, besides the fact that it did... Um, you know, I, I did read the first one. Donald Moss and I got together and we were going to write, like, for, for Writer on Box, 50 Reasons Why Writers Can, you know, Should Look at Fifty Shades of Grey, what lessons they can get. And I think, I think we got up to, like, 73 reasons and it was a three-part post at that point. And we were like, yeah, okay, we better stop and just go back to our lives. Um, and, I, I mean, I think that the, the reason it was accessible is because we were really right in Anastasia Steele's head from the very beginning. We knew what she wanted. We do know a bit about her backstory. We are right there. You know, there is something at stake in the beginning. Um, I will say something kind of instead. I think part of the reasons those, that those books did really well, and this kind of has nothing to do with the writing, um, is, is just because something was going to break through. Erotica was really, you know, more and more. And I honestly think the, the real reason they broke through is because even though they're about bondage, they're pretty vanilla. And I think they allowed people who, weren't, who, who were sort of vanilla and wanted something a little bit edgy. And I think that that's part of it as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's just my personal opinion on, you know, on that. But I think it's because, I mean, and they were, and it was about something and she was a strong character. You know, it wasn't the usual, uh, you know, it, it did break a bunch of tropes. But um, anyway, that's why I think it, it brought people immediately. As a writer, where do you think that we become unstuck? What, what stops a story from actually being published? That seems like two questions. You mean unstuck, like what stops something from being published? Because there's no story there. I mean, what stops something from being published? And literally, funny, when I was an agent and people would say, how much do agents read before they stop reading? which seemed like such an odd question because the answer is they read until they realize that there's nothing here. And really sadly, often that's a paragraph. You okay. know, you go in the first paragraph, 100% you can know, um, 100%. Okay. So, I mean, because most stories are just a bunch of things that happen. I mean, there's no there, there. I mean, I could go on and on and on about all the mistakes that writers make. But most... I mean, the first class I taught back in the day at UCLA Extension was called, I did not come up with this title because it was as an agent, it was called Your Perfect Pitch Package, <laughs> which always sounds like Peter Piper had something to do with it, but they came up with the title, not me. And my goal was to let writers know <laughs> how really dreadful most of the stuff that came into agents 
was that most of it i mean it would literally say it's like you know most of it could be written in crayon and some of it was i mean really utterly dreadful because people don't know i mean they really don't know and, and I, the answer is because you know i mean most <laughs> what's that line like you know for most of the stuff i read if, if you asked me what's it about i'd go it's about 300 pages i have no <laughs> It's just a bunch of things that happen. And a lot of it goes to, you know, what writers have been taught, you know, like that, that hold it, lure the reader in by withholding information. And it's like worst advice ever. Tell them what it's going to be about in the first sentence. You know, as, as I was, I spoke at a SCBWI, the Society of Children's Book Illustrators, or Writers and Illustrators. They had a conference in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a couple of years ago. And there was an, and I was speaking there and there was an editor there. It was Jill Santapolo who said, and it was brilliant. She said her mentor in college had said to her, the first paragraph is a promise you make to your reader. Where are we going? What is this going to be about? Let me know. Instead, writers will sort of hold it back because they think they'll lure the reader in because they'll want to find out. And it's like, you just locked me out. You know, you've locked me out. Give it away. Give it away. Give it all away. So, I mean, most, yeah, most things are not about anything is the problem. Or they're about the plot. And that's probably where they get stuck in there in writer's block, as it were, because they just don't know story. Well, hundred. Well, I mean, yeah, I think it's that they don't know story. It's that they don't know how to create one because they don't realize it would be kind of like, imagine if you were going to write an autobiography of somebody whose name you knew, but you knew nothing about them. And you're going to write their, you know, or, or write a memoir. And you go, well, how, like, what do you have to say? Why is it, are they important? And you go, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, I mean, like to write a novel without doing the work that I really believe is the first part of the novel, meaning before, you know, all, all yeah. stories begin and medias res, meaning in the middle of the thing. First page of the novel is the second page, uh, is the second, begins the second uh, half of the story. The first half is what you have to create over here. Otherwise, it's like saying, I'm going to write a 327 page novel about the most important turning point event in someone's life who I know nothing about why would you do that it makes no sense and coming up with just a plot is even worse because then you just got a bunch of things that happen and your protagonist is like a lab rat who you just kind of plunk in and then they've got to just ring all these bells and why would they do it and why does it matter and why would anybody care and you know i mean so that's where 98 percent of writers are at yeah exactly. and the reason why it's been the rejections so high yeah hundred percent but like i said editors and agents know within a page wow. you know stuff you don't read beyond a page because it's just you just know mm. well often often when we're reading books as well we all always like look at like the first couple of sentences I, and if our first if the first couple of sentences draw us in then it's something we'll keep looking at but if the first couple of sentences are kind of a bit bland, it's like, where is this going to go? Yeah. If, in, if in the first sentence paragraph, I don't like it, I'll put it back on the shelf. Yeah, me too. I mean, that's the, it's, I mean, what people don't realize, I think often, is they think that once someone picks up a book, that it's their responsibility to read it. And it's like, readers are busy. They're there solely for their own pleasure. They don't care about you. They don't care about how much work you put in. They don't know you. You don't matter even a tiny bit. All they care about is, is this going to pull me in? They don't give you any leeway. They don't give you the benefit of any debt. Why should they? Mm -hmm. When you're reading, you don't do that. Why would you? Yeah. 
is this going to be worth it, especially now when we all want some kind of a, of anything to, you know, you know, recharge our batteries and pull us away from the, you know, the scariness out there in the world. Yeah. It's, we're all looking for that. So, you know, it's, 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 it, it's all about the story that you're telling, but the stories about how someone solves a problem that already exists internally. And then, you know, usually also externally because it's the, consequences you know unintended consequences of all the choices that they've made. what would you suggest for someone who who's maybe had an idea for a book they've been thinking about it but they're not really sure where to start i think with all of it, it you know i mean i mean you have to figure out you know that what i talk about the what if like what is this going to be about where do you want to go what's your point what are you trying to say why does it matter to you really diving in and figuring that out and then going back and creating, you know, this protagonist. But, but it's hard to say, I mean, in the sense of an idea itself, it, it depends on what that is. You know, I mean, most people have some kind of a seed of something that, you know, that is, and my question always is, what's that what if? Where are you going? Who's your protagonist? What's it going to cost them? Why is it going to matter? Why is this thing that you think of that might happen? Whose story is it? And what choice are they going to have to make right there at the beginning? What's it going to cost them emotionally? I mean, you're looking for that, 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 and I hate using the word moral because it sounds like it has to do with religion and I don't mean it that way at all, but the moral crux. They want this, it's going to cost them that to get it. What is that on that level? And it's figuring that out then, and then it goes into who are they? Who are they right before the story starts? What are they inner wanting? What is that misbelief? Why do they want it? Where did it come from? And going all the way back and, you know, and creating all of that. So that brings you back up to what that problem is. And then figuring out what the problem is. What, what will that plot be that is going to force your protagonist to go after what they want and force them to confront that misbelief as it goes forward? It's like my son was saying recently, my son is a movie producer. Um, and he was talking about, uh, they were giving notes to a, a screenwriter who they're about to do the film. And he said, you know, the problem was that there wasn't enough backstory in, you know, to, to give the characters any kind of, you know, what they would want going forward to give meaning to it. And he said, and I love this, he said, because the plot is what makes the unconscious conscious. And that's a way to look at it. Like by that time, the misbelief is something that, you know, your protagonist doesn't know it's a misbelief. It's how they're seeing the world. In other words, they're not consciously thinking about it anymore. It's just built into that lens that they're using to make sense of things because they, you know, they think that it's just true. And now something's going to butt up against something and they're going to have to think about it. That's what the plot does. It forces them to think about it because now they're recognizing the thing that, that's keeping them from, you know, being able to get what they want. What one book, if you can say that? I know that you've read many and, and um, a lot of journals and things like that, but what's one book that's actually inspired you um, in to become a writer and author? Um, that's, that's informed your writing career, as it were. That's hard because I don't write fiction. You know, I mean, I write story. I mean, if, if I were to say what book as a child okay. really, you know, really got to me more than any other, um, it would be A Wrinkle in Time. It would be Madeline Engel's Wrinkle in Time. I read it when I was nine and it, I feel like it totally, it totally changed my life. Um, on that level. But in terms of this and what I write about, I, I owe everything 
to the bad manuscripts that I, that I read. I mean, I really do. It, it was really looking in and going, this isn't getting to me, what's missing? And it was never, there aren't enough sensory details. It was never, if only there were more metaphors, this would be good. <laughs> it was never, if only the sentences were structured differently or it was always, I don't care about these characters. Why don't I care? I don't care about what's happening. Why don't I care? Oh. You know, and the, what makes us, if I could just say one quick thing, what makes us care about a character and what makes a character likable is not that they're likable in the sense of they're perfect. You never want a perfect character, ever. What makes them likable, and I've heard people say, what makes them likable is, is that they're accessible. And that seems to me to be just as vague as anything. I think what makes them likable is that they're vulnerable. What, what are they afraid of? What is it gonna cost them? Even though they'll go, but I don't want my character to be unlikable. She's kind of mean or whatever, and nobody's gonna like her. It's like, show us her insecurity. Show us what it's costing her. Show us her fear of saying that. Show us why she feels like she's doing it. Then we're gonna see that she's vulnerable, and then we're gonna be on her side. And then we're gonna to wanna to know what happens next. Because that's what we come for. We come to story for those me too moments. We come to story for those, wow, that character's doing that weird thing. And I do that weird thing. And I thought that made me weird. I didn't realize that made me, that that's what people like about me, that that makes me special. And that makes me really, you know, something that that's something that people would wanna know me. That's a valuable thing, not something I gotta keep under wraps. That's what we come to story for. Which means that as a writer, you have to be willing to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to expose things in yourself. I mean, my another another motto that I have is when you're writing, if it doesn't hurt at least a little bit, you're not doing it right. I mean, I can tell you that anytime I got a query letter that said, I hope you have as much fun reading this as I had writing it, I know I don't have to read another word. <laughs> because and it was always true. Like, like what's the point? It, it's not fun. It's not fun. I think the truest thing is that Dorothy Parker, what did she say? I hate writing. I love having written. <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably, you know, the truest. Just, just, I lied. Just one, one more. <laughs> I'm finding. I can go on and on and on. I'm finding when I was going through um, your book and I was uh, doing all backstory that I um, actually, before I always hated my antagonist. <laughs> Um, but he's become more humanized yes. and I'm, I'm understanding why he does what he does. He's, you know, works from in revenge and he's resisting and he's, you know, resenting things. And so he, he goes into that resent, resist, revenge. And, yeah, but, and you get down to the wall because you never want any character to be all good or all bad, especially because if they're all bad, they're opaque and then they can't change. And it's just like, who cares? And nobody is that. I mean, yeah, I mean, really, again, we don't come for what, we come for what. It's part of the reason why we love murder mysteries and all that, or, you know, or a crime drama, because we want to know why did that character do that really bad thing? Often why people will say, well, the detectives will stay the same, and the best ones are the ones I think who have an internal struggle as well, Dalgalish or, you know, or, or even Lindley, or, you know, they've got, there's something in their past that, that is also dogging them. But, but we're there because we want to know why did that bad guy do it, what they did? And it, the answer, if the answer is just because they were evil, well, who cares? Like, what difference is it? I mean, even that's why we like characters like one of the, I think one of the best books ever written um, is, is Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley. 
he's a bad guy for sure, but it's fascinating why he does what he does. Or there's, there's this great book um, called Perfect Days by a guy named, I think Raphael Montez is his name. And it's, it's, it's the story of a psychopath. And it's, you know, it's this guy's story. And it's, you know, it's basically, so you're in the head of a psychopath. Well, thinking why, because don't, don't you want to know? I want to know why a psychopath does what they do. I want to know it. And so it gives us that why. We always want to know the why. And if you have a bad guy who's just a bad guy, they're boring. And they can't surprise us, you know, unless something happens that we don't believe. So it's always the why. You want to have empathy for every character that you've got, every character. You know, good or bad, you know, because nobody, because that's the other mistake that we make is that we tend to think that a person could make the right decision and there's one right decision that's just right across the board. But there's not, there's not, there's always collateral damage in any decision we make. That's why it's interesting. Well, thank you so much. We have absolutely loved talking to you and we love your book again everybody we thoroughly recommend we know that a lot of our authors you will have this we actually just don't get the books that we send in your boxes and go okay i've got another one to put on the shelf please mm. please 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 go okay. through you can see that i don't know whether yes. you can see all my little boy <laughs> and it's just it is now a well-worn book and it will be with every single novel I hope to write, and we uh, we recommend that this this is I think this has changed the way we're yep. writing, and we absolutely love it. Um, a little, it's changing the way my 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 husband speaks. He's a speaker, and he's actually got both. I gave him wide for story, and this one, um, and it's changing how he's doing things in telling story. Because um, he's fascinated with brain science, that's just a little. But um, so it's changing him in doing the in doing speaking. So, <laughs> but how can if anyone wants to get in contact with you, how can they get in contact with you? Through my website, which is just wiredforstory.com. I'm super easy to find. Wiredforstory.com. That is me. I am there, and that's how they can find me. Fantastic. Well, we're looking forward again to your next one coming out. That's going to be fascinating. So thank you so, so much. This has been great. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Writer in Progress podcast. We hope that this interview with Lisa brought you lots of clarity and understanding on the power of storytelling. If you are after either of her books, Wired for Story or Story Genius, both are available for purchase on our website, www.scriptbox.com.au. That's Scriptbox, S-C-R-I-P-T-E-R-B-O-X. Thanks again for joining us today. Happy writing, friends.